Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars and Merry Christmas listeners. Yes, no, you're right. You're doing you're <laughs> doing that wonderful time bending thing, which I keep forgetting about. Yeah, yeah, we don't we don't do these live. I'm not talking to you as you as you listen, dear listener. No, it's just it's interesting because I was going to make a whole point about like, gosh, PJ, I can't believe it's only been a few days since we last recorded an episode, mm. and you're very rightly looking to the future, looking ahead, and of course, yeah, this is like Christmas time, kind of near or very nearly. I'm sorry, I'm I'm my time sense is. It's all over the shop. I this, don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> this this episode should be coming out the Monday before Christmas. So I'm very glad it's such a festive issue. Uh, it thematically fits the season. No, I'm joking. There's nothing to do with Christmas in this comic. So, <laughs> uh, Hang on a minute. If I squint really hard... Um, I mean, Zariel's in it. <laughs> That's true. That Yeah, and maybe. Act- and Aquaman, and he has long hair and a beard, just like Jesus. Oh, and and PJ, the Shaggy Man, <laughs> who is clearly Santa, like deep down. Oh, I I am so happy we're at this story. I I bloody love the Shaggy Man. Um. So spoilers, everyone. We're not doing DC One Million anymore. I'm so sorry. It's over. Um. We're on to Justice for All. It's amazing. Yeah, and I've got to say, pulling this particular book off my shelf yesterday, sitting down to read the first issue in it, I felt very happy to just be back on the main JLA series. It was it, it mm. gave me a little bit of a rush. It's nice to go away sometimes. It's even nicer to, to come home, really. Yes, indeed. PJ, now, where can you... Do you have a memory... At all, I have several. Well, it's well, it, it's okay to say no. <laughs> Don't rush in. Do you have any recollection of when you first got this trade paperback? Yes, I do actually. Because when I would have been, I don't know what year did this trade come out? Nineteen ninety something. I'm looking at my copy right now. Nineteen ninety nine. Wow, they didn't waste any time, did they? Uh, yeah, I've got the Titan Books edition again of this one. So that came out when I was, hang on, I can do this, 17 and working a Saturday job in the bookshop while I did my A-levels. When I started working in Waterstones, I 
bought the uh, JLA graphic novels that had been released in by 98 in sequence and devoured them very quickly. And then I finished Strength in Numbers and I had to wait for mm. Justice for All. So and every weekend, every week, I'd get to work, get on the little computer, check if it was if the new volume of JLA was available for me to order in yet. And then the week it was, I was so excited. So then I I I ordered it. By the following weekend, it was there. Bought it, took it home, devoured it in one sitting, and it was it was it was my first experience of having to wait for new JLA, uh, and oh, it didn't disappoint. It's so weird, isn't it? Because this, uh, well, I mean, this first issue we're going to read uh, came out in December '98. Mm. Actually, thinking about it, I, I'm looking at my spreadsheet now, and the last part. So, so this this graphic novel spans single issues running from December 1998 to September 1999. Yeah, so, so it they been... must have gotten this out pretty quickly afterwards. Yeah, because I think it would have been like October, November time that I bought it. So that's crazy. And also weird that, you know, you and I being over here in the UK, that, you know, how much of the hunger was there in a, in a UK audience? And we're not talking like a comic shop going audience. We're talking like a high street bookshop kind of audience for... A Justice League graphic novel. I mean, aside from Superman and Batman, they were just not as popular as Marvel in the UK. No, they weren't. And but it's weird that at this point, DC graphic novels were more readily available in bookshops because mm. they had the publishing agreement with Titan, so Titan would put them out. But there wasn't a company doing that for Marvel at that point. I think it was four or five years later when Panini started actually publishing their own versions of the Marvel graphic novels. Um, so I found while I found it easier to get Marvel single issues, it was me much easier for me to track down DC graphic novels at the time well we we had these really and you might be able to comment on this pj because you're uh you know you're quite knowledgeable about this sort of thing but we had these really weird um marvel uh uk original marvel comics but for a slightly younger audience um for example i used to collect a spider-man comic that came out in the uk I was very young. I have no idea who published it. It was a larger paper size, UK paper size. Yes, I know the one. Is that ringing a bell? Spectacular Spider-Man Adventures. Yeah, and I I vividly remember um, picking up an issue of that, or rather my parents getting it for me because I was but a child, where Spider-Man is fighting a villain called... Maybe called like the Looter? Yep. And... I think I found out after the fact that that was maybe like a retelling of an original comic that had appeared, obviously, in America. Like, it what it was brand new artwork. It was a truncated, shorter story, a complete reimagining of an encounter, but pitched at a slightly younger audience, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so that comic, I didn't read a lot of that comic because... I felt like I was a little too old for it when it was coming out. I was 16, 17 when it started, I think. 
maybe a little bit younger, but I think it was originally started to tie in with the 90s Spider-Man animated series. Uh-huh. Um, because that was around at a fairly, that started and then this comic started. But then obviously it outlasted the series and then they started doing their own thing with it. Um, friend of mine, uh, Simon Williams, uh, drew it for a long time. He he was the main artist on that book for a good long run. Um, he's also done the work for the UK releases for some of the old Marvel cartoons on on DVD. He did the Incredible Hulk ones and the Spider-Man ones. Yes, I can Um, picture his artwork now. Yeah, there's a brilliant picture for season two of Spider-Man that he did on the cover of the Spider-Man DVDs of Spider-Man and Wolverine fighting because you had the X-Men guest starring in two episodes of the Spider-Man cartoon. Uh, But yeah, he he worked on it for a good long while and, and did really, really good stuff on it. God, we're we're weird in the UK, aren't we? Yep. Like where? I mean, you don't even need to qualify it. <laughs> no, but there's such a we had this such this weird culture in, particularly in like the 90s and 80s, of kind of like remixing and re repackaging like uh, the US content. It was it was bizarre. I, I don't know why it was so hard for us to just get the originals over here. Yeah, it's an odd one, but it it goes the other way as well, doesn't it? Like how in the US they remake so many of our TV shows and more often than not terribly, but they still do it. (laughs) PJ, please don't alienate our our US audience. (laughs) I don't think any of our US listeners made those TV shows, and to be fair, their version of The Office is better than ours. That's the olive branch we need, need, PJ. (laughs) Do you... um, I'm looking at my trade paperback here, and does yours have a an original cover from Howard Porter, which yes. is kind of um, not knocks uh, taken across from any of the individual issues? It's like a kind of um, reimagining of like all the stories contained in the books. Yeah, it's one of my favourite covers he did for the trades, actually, because you've got the big seven just sort of leaping out at you, and then behind them three images from three of the different stories. Uh, so you you get characters from the story we're about to look at a villain from a later one and then we've already mentioned the jsa team up happens later on so you also get wildcat and captain marvel uh, in one of the boxes this this thankfully confirms that i'm looking at the exact same version you have pj because yeah i i also loved this cover um i think even you know when i first picked up this book i very quickly realized that this was an impossible cover because it didn't you know it didn't correlate to any one story in the book uh, and I really liked it. Um, and I think I have, on some subconscious level at least, been desperately trying to find an excuse to uh, ape this cover <laughs> on one of my own books, actually. And that, that uh, it just hasn't popped up yet. But uh, the first two volumes of Afterlife, I think, weren't they all anthology books? So it was all different stories. Oh, you had the perfect opportunity. No, wait, volume two. No, I did. I did volume two of Afterlife, I think, is kind of like a... An homage to this. There you go. You have done it. I did. You're do just it. so old. You forgot. I know. I PJ. It's getting worse. <laughs> I can't remember half the crap I've done. It's really. Uh, it's becoming a problem. <laughs> um, but uh, I I vividly remember where I was when I got this book, and I was in my first year of university. So it was a little later. We're talking kind of like um, late two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. And because I, I think as I've mentioned on a previous episode, I'd, I'd come across uh, again in a high street bookshop. I'd come across uh, the Justice League trades, um, 
and I started on World, on World War Three, the final volume in this series. You're and crazy. I, oh, well, again, I didn't know what the hell it was. I think I just probably picked it up at random, liked the artwork, and hello, who's this Grant Morrison? And suddenly I was like, oh, comics can be weird. <laughs> and um, and probably changed my life, actually. Um, so, But I'd been gradually working my way through the series and kind of like picking up all these missing these missing pieces to complete it and i got it in a, an utterly kind of scattershot order uh so this was not the last book i bought it was somewhere in the middle but i i really 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 remember it was my first kind of winter at university my first kind of you know dark winter months living away from home and i remember we'd walked into town me and some friends i went to a forbidden planet and I bought I bought this for myself and took it home. And I remember just sitting and devouring this book hmm. and like reading it over and over and over again in those kind of university years. Uh, like with like with all the um, the JLA books and my hmm. my kind of burgeoning graphic novel collection. And kind of just feeling that this this trade was immense value for money. Like there's oh god, yeah, so much going on in it. My copy, eight ninety nine, <laughs> and like, I got that with discount as well because I was sad I was working at Waterstones at the time, and and this collects nine comics. Yeah, that's a lot. Slightly less than a pound a comic, and these are really good comics. They are really good comics, and yeah, I'm I'm desperately trying to find a a a, a UK price on this book, and I I can't for the life of me. It's all in uh, Canadian and US dollars. And um, yeah, and what's weird is that, like, you know, the average trade nowadays is pretty standardized at like six, six issues and it's about a tenner, you know. And yeah, yeah and this is just it's packed like this is a dense book. It, I, I, I read comics pretty quickly. I, I, I you know, I, I can I can turn the pages pretty rapidly, but this one, it takes a while. Because there's a lot to take in, and it's so entertaining on every level. Yeah, I obviously we haven't gone through them again yet, but I don't think there's a dud story in this book. Even when you get to the guest writers, I think even they bring bring their A game in mm. this book, and and I'm I'm excited for the guest writer stories. Like the last Mark Wade stories we looked at, I enjoyed them, I liked them, but I wasn't excited to get to them. This time, I'm excited. I'm excited for the Mark Miller story. There's not many Mark Miller stories I can say I'm excited to read, but this one, I, I'd love it. I think it's brilliant. Oh, I agree. I agree. Um, as we alluded to in the previous episode, I think possibly one of the best things he's ever written. Mm. Um, but no, I agree, because um, I, uh, I was slightly colder on the Mark Wade guest stories in the, last, in the last book. I really like these ones. I really like these ones. I think um, there's a real charm to them. Yeah, and we also have uh, another guest writer in the book, Devin Grayson, who... Um, I can't remember which story she writes on, to be honest. But yeah, and I'm I'm not massively familiar with their work, but it's a it's a joint, isn't it? On the um, uh, oh, it's the second to last uh, Wade storyline with the you know PJ uh, avoiding spoilers. The thing that happens with the um, yeah, you know you know that thing. I know the thing, yeah. uh, which which would make sense because she is best known for writing on the Bat Family series of books. I think. Uh-huh. Well, there we go. There we go. It all it all comes together. Um, PJ, uh, before we dive into the story, 
Uh, and uh, given that we have mentioned the cover very briefly, um, we've talked about the different eras of mm. the Morrison run on JLA. And maybe this is the start of a new era. Maybe it's the continuation of one. I'm not sure. But what better signifier that of how we've progressed across this series it's the way that Howard Porter's art is changing. Yes. Because if you compare his depiction of the League on the cover of Justice for All with, say, um, uh, New World Order... Yeah. I mean, for crying out, for crying out loud, it could be a different artist. It's, it's, it's wild how much uh, it, he, he's changed over the course of the series. Yeah, I agree, actually. His, his Superman feels more powerful here... Uh, his Flash and Green Lantern are slightly thinner. They're not because they, they were quite muscular in the first volume. They obviously they're still very fit, athletic men, but but they're not as as broad here. And I think it works better for them. And yeah, I, I think there is an evolution that you can see if you compare and contrast the the two covers. And I'd I'd love to I'd love to I don't know pick his brains about that at some point. Like I would just I would just be fascinated to know. You know, is is that just because you know when you've been drawing uh, the same characters like for what twenty four issues? You know, mm. is that just the natural evolution of of your pen over that time, or you know, did he was he consciously trying to mix things up? You know, to to change things around. I I would love to know. There's a tiny element on this particular cover that I'm looking at now, and I actually think he does really well it's one of those things that's sort of subtle you shouldn't notice it too much but when you do look at it it's it just it's perfect and it's superman's spit curl mm. yeah he's um for lack of a better word i think like uh when he was drawing the characters in say book one uh they were quite janky there was mm. like a kind of jaggedness uh, to the, all the angles, you know. And Superman's face was was has become more rounded. Yeah, softer. You know, he, yeah, definitely. And it does suit him so well now. And yeah, losing the mullet has been quite kind to Superman as well. It's th The reason I'm focusing on the spit curl, I think, is it's so easy for artists to just sort of add it as an afterthought and it's just something that's at the front of Superman's hair that doesn't actually make much sense. It does look here like Porter's managed to successfully incorporate it into Superman's hair properly so that <laughs> it does look like it's a natural thing that his hair's just doing. And if that does that make sense, what I'm saying? It, it, <laughs> it does. It does, PJ. It does. And... I think I think uh, Porter's depiction of Superman is one of the highlights, actually. Um, yeah, going back all all the way to Electric Blue Superman. Um, ah, moving the moon, fighting an angel. I was ties. I was having. I was literally probably probably boring Nick to tears the other day because I was just kind of recounting and reenacting that entire that entire issue basically as how it was one of the greatest Superman mo moments of all time. Are you telling me Nick doesn't listen to the podcast? No, I was hurt too, PJ. I was. <laughs> I it, it cut me deep there. Um, and and also, I mean, talk about ungrateful. I years ago I got him World War Three as a present, as a Christmas oh. present, one year because I was like, you, this is <laughs> this is where it all began for me. You have to suffer as well now. Like you, it's important that you <laughs> you go through the same journey I did. 
the uh, the subtext I'm hearing here is PJ, you were my second choice for co-host on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, PJ. Think about it. Think about it. Nick Nick had already proven himself unworthy. You know, when when the call went out, I knew that only one person would answer. And that was you. That was you, PJ. Nicely saved. Nicely saved. No. <laughs> Do you ever get a weird thing where you realise you've been looking at Superman for so long, like in your life, you know, as a cultural icon he is, that um, it's like seeing the wood for the trees. Like uh, you suddenly stop kind of seeing him for what he is anymore. I, I I had a bizarre moment where while we were talking, I was just staring at the cover for this book. And I had to like almost like blur and refocus my eyes for a moment, and I was just like, <laughs> "Superman's pretty cool, actually." Like yeah. it just t- it just took me a moment where I was like, "He's like the furniture; he's just always there." And now I just had to kind of pause for a minute and go, "Yeah, he's pretty rad. He's pretty rad." I, I feel like I've hit a point in my life now where um, I, Superman is is now. In my 20s, I would never have said he was one of my favourite characters. Obviously, I liked him. I, I, I read a lot of his comics and I thoroughly enjoyed them, but I'd never put him in one of my absolute favourites. These days, he is. Mm. These days, Superman has become one of my absolute favourites and means a lot to me. And so I have been through that, that you're describing there, but I love Superman so much now that I, I know I know when he's there and, and always know. And yeah, it's brilliant. Well, it's tough, isn't it? When a character—I mean, for crying out loud, this is basically the exact same conversation that Wally and Superman had in that infamous uh, and famous <laughs> uh, issue we referred to earlier. But yeah, it's almost like Superman is such a symbol nowadays, and he—and he's such a—he has such a reputation. It's—it's it's hard to see him as, for lack of a better word, uh, just a superhero in a way. Yeah, like. Yeah. Um, yeah, but if someone invented Superman tomorrow, starting from scratch, he would still be a very striking character. You know, like, yeah. we, we take the whole kind of the big S and the blue and the red pants, you know, we it's become a bit of a joke or a meme in a way. But like, yeah, trying to examine Superman in a vacuum without any of the the cultural baggage. And yeah, he, he is a... It's a gr- it's a great design, both in terms of visual and actually what he stands for. Superman yeah. is a Superman is a good thing, PJ, and I'm basically just glad he exists. Hard same. <laughs> well, um, PJ, on that note, do we do we do we want to uh, resume our journey through the JLA series? Oh, I think we do. I think we do because spoilers, folks. Having reread this issue last night, oh, it's good. It's very good. <laughs> um. So, PJ, when last we left our heroes, um, they've been dealing with a giant star. Yeah, yeah, we they'd had to deal with DC 1 million. We all had to deal with DC 1 million in our own ways. But the JLA in particular had to fight a son that was alive and bring their version of Superman millions of years, not millions, thousands and thousands, I don't know the number, a long time into the future, Uh out of the sun and save him from a plot to kill him and uh, it was a whole thing and it was weird but it ended quite well and before that super adventure they had had to deal with a giant starfish as well oh my do you know what 
it's been so long that I'd forgotten that that was the last issue of the regular JLA series we looked at. Well, yeah, and, and particularly when you consider that uh, DC One Million all came out in one month. It's like, yeah, it, yeah, it, it literally, it's like, hey, kids, uh, the JLA have just defeated the Star Conqueror, and now things are going to go absolutely insane for the month of November, and suddenly, hey, it's December, everyone, and we're back, we're back into the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Wonder Woman's back, but we didn't know that because they didn't reprint those pages in any of the trades. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> that's wild, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why the trades saw fit to deprive us of that. Um, but no, we are. This is a. I don't want to call it Monster of the Week because it isn't Monster of the Week. It's it's well, it's a so three, much more. It's a three month adventure, but this is a more or less kind of more or less kind of self-contained little adventure yeah and it's it's delightful i i i yeah it's um so no context needed i suppose other than hello we are deep 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 underwater yeah and a man is being fired out of a submarine like he's some kind of torpedo now pj normally i would say who the hell is this character um Except, uh, thanks to DC One Million, I still have no idea who his character is, other than we briefly saw him. Yeah, there was... Uh, was it DC One Million issue two? There was a brief yes. moment, a, a, an unnecessary scene in that crossover, in my humble opinion, where someone was talking to General Wade Eiling, and he had some people stood behind him, and this was one of them. And uh, it's uh, a cool kind of armoured humanoid uh, with a big kind of single red eye in the middle of his face uh, and apparently he's called Warmaker 1 and he's being fired out of a submarine like a torpedo yeah and there's caption settings there at 20,000 feet he's operational we see his sort of infrared point of view and he's scanning for a vaguely human shaped figure that he has now managed to find and starts Blasting some kind of a stasis tube out of the rock. And, uh, I mean, some kind of stasis tube, PJ. Uh, well, as we, turn, uh, as we turn the page, we see that inside that very stasis tube is, is Father Christmas, PJ. It's a very large, <laughs> hairy man. And, um, yeah, uh, Warmaker 1 communicates via radio and just says, Warmaker 1 to Excelsior target retrieved so apparently stan lee is the captain of that submarine well uh, uh, another man with facial hair pj maybe maybe this is stan lee in in the tube that would be wild <laughs> that would be wild well maybe maybe this is what he looks like before he shaves uh but yes <laughs> yes but apparently pj they were after a hairy man all this time he looks a bit shaggy, doesn't he? Uh, then we get the title and the credits. Executive Action, Grant Morrison Writer, Howard Porter Penciler, John Dell Inker, Ken Lopez Letterer, Pat Garrahy Colorist, Heroic Age Separations, Tony Bedard Associate Editor, and Dan Raspler Editor. Then we get the JLA roll call, and this makes me a bit grumpy, because we get Plastic Man, Zauriel, Steel, Superman, Batman, Huntress, Oracle, Aquaman, Green Lantern. Flash and Wonder Woman are in this comic as well, but they're not worthy of the roll call, apparently. I do feel that around this era, era they were just like, the roll call was basically just like, ah, oh, what the hell? Like, in it, fact, it, it very rarely has any bearing on who's actually in the story. 
Yeah, because Big Barda and Orion are in this issue as well. So, <laughs> yeah, come on, guys, it's all or nothing. You know, you got to commit. <laughs> yeah, give me that full roll call, not this abridged crap. Yeah, well, at least um, Plastic Man gets to be number one for a change. <laughs> I don't understand the order they put these characters in either. No, I, I do. I do enjoy how utterly, seemingly random the lineup is. I like the natural evolution of the roster over time and how you've got some of the founders you've got some of the newbies you know you know if you uh you know take a microphone uh accost someone in the street and say quickly you know for 50 dollars name the like name a justice league roll call i don't think anyone would go oh yeah well it's plastic man the angel you know steel i guess superman and batman um huntress yeah maybe you know, I love, it's a very weird lineup. And if you'd launched a book with this lineup, I wouldn't care. But yeah. it's been earned here. I, li- I like all the characters because of the time we've spent with them. Yeah, very much so. I was wondering if maybe if you put the uh, the first letter of all their names together, it would get a word. But Pumzbehogel isn't a word. Oh, PJ, what, now you've banished me back to my home dimension. <laughs> <laughs> um but we cut to we cut to the moon, PJ, and um, there's a JLA alarm ringing because somebody's trying to steal the Shaggy Man. And then we get Plastic Man and Zauriel introduced with their own logos, and you know I've mentioned it before, but I love it when comics do that. And Plastic Man is is quite rightly incredulous. He's like, well, the, yeah, that makes no sense. Is this a joke? And Zauriel's just like, well, that, that's what it says here. It says the Shaggy Man. It's an old JLA code from a while back. So Zariel has to actually punch it up on the computer and, and look the Shaggy Man up. And we do get a nice little shot here, which is just the weirdest kind of um, framing, but I love it, which is where uh, Zariel is uh, punching a button on a holographic display screen. But I don't know, the screen is kind of like dissolving as he's mm. pressing it, so we're kind of viewing it f- through the disintegrating screen. It's, I don't know, it's stupid, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's 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 really cool. I love it as well. Oh and Oh and PJ, sorry, before before I forget, uh you talking about your love of a character turning up with their their title in its own font. Mm. Um could we uh could we just um share a moment to remember the terrible three D early CGI computer image titles we used to get? And how lovely it is to just have a regular font now. Yeah, but now I kind of miss those glory days of the <laughs> terrible 3D CG computer titles. PJ, no, no, no. This is a sign of a series maturing, finding its feet. <laughs> this is a this is a this is a series that has ripped off all the snap bracelets. You know, it's it's growing out of the nineties. Ah, <laughs> oh, you can never really grow out of the nineties. It's coming back. Everything does. <laughs> And frankly, we are doing a nostalgia-based podcast, so maybe we yeah. could blame. <laughs> oh, God, we brought back the 90s. Anyway, we we see what's on Zauriel's computer display, and there's a, a couple of shots just of the Shaggy Man. He's a big Shaggy Man. A shot of the guy who created him, and a little little biography that he's an artificial humanoid created by Professor Zagarian, 12 feet high, weighs a 1,000 pounds. And then caution extremely dangerous planetary level threat as you see him smashing through a wall holding batman and green arrow 
oh yeah, that is Green Arrow in his hands and Hal Jordan is sort of stood in front shouting at a TV camera. And so, the Flash is there too. So PJ, I have to ask, is is this what it's, you know, this little um, red holographic display here telling us about the Shaggy Mang's past, is this what it's like for you every time you remember something JLA related? <laughs> uh, with me, it's sort of a, a bluey green colour. Um, but but genuinely though, PJ, because you are a font of knowledge, are you familiar in your own life with the Shaggy Mang's first appearance? I couldn't swear that I'd read his first appearance. I've definitely read a Shaggy Man appearance. I don't know if it was a retelling. I cannot remember which comic it was from, but I did go and seek out uh, a Shaggy Man story after I read this because I was like a giant shaggy thing that just punches a lot. Yeah, yeah, I want to read that. And did, and was that the? Do you, do you believe that was the original appearance you you dug up? I or? think I think it was. Yeah, um, I'd have to double check to be honest. It's a long time ago that I read it. Well, um, you know, for a lay a, a lay person like myself, particularly at the time, I had never heard of the Shaggy Man beforehand. Uh, thankfully, that doesn't really matter because no. um, it's about to go places anyway. So all you need to know is, and hey, I guess who's here to remind us? It's Steel. Um, uh, so Steel turns up and basically says the Shaggy Man is far from amusing. It will destroy anything in its path, and it's completely indestructible. We don't want to have to clean up that mess. And Skeel is looking absolutely badass in this yep. battle, I have to say. Yep, he set the floor on fire with his boot jets, uh, which strikes me as dangerous. <laughs> and also, can I, I mean, can I just say I love the subtle reinforcement of the... I feel like we're missing... There, There is a secret sitcom running behind the scenes of JLA which we're just not privy to, which is basically like the life and times of Plastic Man, Zariel, and Steel just <laughs> hanging out on the moon all the time. I yeah, love Steel's the tired of the wacky hijinks of the, uh, the the Angel and the Rubber Man duo. Well, yeah, because like Zariel and Plastic Man seem to spend all their time together um, because Zariel is a guardian angel and is perfect for monitor duty. And Plastic Man, despite his his annoying personality actually cares a lot more than he lets on. And Steel is just like the de facto leader. Like, mm. he's he's so good at actually being in charge. Yeah, to the point that he's the one who just says, right, who do we have in the field on this page? And he's immediately taking command of the situation. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And, uh, you know, and I guess he also gets to mend the floor every time he ruins it with his boot jets. Yeah, which he's clearly done, because that's a lot of fire. Um, but Steele, being in charge and being very focused, uh, asks the question, who do we have in the field? Question mark. You know who they've got in the field, John? Who, who PJ? It's only Bleeding Superman. It's only ble- <laughs> Bleeding Superman? It's a, it's, I wasn't familiar with that variation. <laughs> that was the uh, red version. The red version, yeah. He was constantly screaming. <laughs> um, but PJ, Clark Kent couldn't possibly save the day. He's got, a, he's got a, an article to finish writing. Yeah, but I love these. Like, oh, there's a JLA alarm. Okay, and just super speed types his his article. And the effect they do with uh, Lois walking into the room as well is great. She sort of, with the way they've coloured her, she's moving in slow motion, and her her speech bubble in the panel is just cur. Next panel, lar, <laughs> and then the final panel, Clark, as Superman returns to sort of normal speed. And I do love that. Of course, this is a period in in. Um 
in comics history where uh, Lois and Clark are married. Mm-hmm. And she is well aware that he's Superman, as we all know, because we've been reading the series. So I love that she's just, whoa, 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 stop it. I know what you're about to do. Keep your shirt on, literally. Uh, <laughs> we have a story to look into. And Superman says, but I was, I was just about to respond to a JLA emergency. And I do like Lois's line here. Well, I'll leave it for Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because again, even Lois knows Green Lantern is very good. Yep. Yeah, and if Lois Lane tells you, it's got to be true. But yeah, but apparently um, what there is something more important than a potential emergency, and it is a press conference being held by Wade Eiling, General Wade Eiling. Um, and as we smash cut to it, it the, the general, the big man, is standing on a podium and he is announcing uh, the the Army of Tomorrow, the Ultramarine Corps, and he has a great big television screen behind him showing our our new our new heroes and uh, warmaker 1 is among them front and center in fact and he has either side of him two other figures one is a lady in green and white with a cape and energy sort of around her head the other is a black and gold fella who's got energy crackling around his hands and then there's a big liquid man behind all of them i just want to i just want to Put it in writing, put it in audio, right this second. I thought these were the coolest, just just for coolest shit, PJ. I loved everything about the Ultramarine Corps. <laughs> I think there's, Warmaker 1 aside, because he's got, uh, you know, a lot of pouches on his belt. He's He's got small missiles on his wrists. He looks very 90s. The other three, though, this doesn't feel like, for example... The uh, the White Martians in New World Order, which was clearly... Look at these gnarly 90s heroes. This just feels like more timeless designs. Mm. And I um, I can't say this with 100% certainty, but I'd be, I would be willing to bet that these are direct Morrison designs. Okay. Because, uh, uh, again, Morrison does design a lot of their minor characters. They're, they are a fairly accomplished artists in their own right actually i've seen some of the sketches and yeah there's something about this that makes me think that it's very 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 likely that morrison would have dictated how these looked and with mm. apologies to, to howard porter i'm willing to be proved wrong but i have a feeling that particularly uh pulse eight i have a feeling that that, that that's a morrison design well it wouldn't surprise me either to be honest <laughs> um but pj what what's uh what are they talking about so the the gathered people at this press conference are asking, well, why do we need a super military? We've got the JLA and General Eilings basically says, well, the JLA has already said that their perspective is global and that could include them helping our enemy nations. And, you know, I'm a racist bigot, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this is also, I mean, what, this is 1998, this is a few years before the Ultimates came out. Yes, yeah. And uh, I'm sure this isn't the first time, and it won't be the last, that we've seen uh, creative teams doing something with the kind of fusing the military and superheroes. But um, this is in many ways kind of like a, a har- harbinger of what uh, Ultimates would would be, really. Yeah. You know, uh, there are a lot of people whose introduction to the Avengers, quote unquote, was was that they were a quasi-military organization. Yeah, 
very much so. And that's what that's what we've got here as well. But here's the thing, though. In the DC universe, superheroes are celebrities in a way that they're not so much in the Marvel universe. Mm. And so you do get the press here going, well, hang on, what makes these different from all the superheroes we've already got? And General Eiling's basically like, hey, hey, these are military guys. And then tells us their origin, which is basically they step through a weird dimensional portal. It's basically the, not the Fantastic Four. It's it, it's very similar to the Ultimate Fantastic Four's origin, I think, isn't it? It is, it is, and I'm I'm actually it's actually just occurring to me now that of course Mark Miller worked on this book, and obviously he was getting on quite well with Morrison at the time. Mm. I'm just thinking like there's a there's a few actually yeah there's a lot here that could I'm not going to say it directly inspired the Ultimates, but hmm. well yeah Miller did the Ultimates and wasn't it also Ultimate Fantastic Four was Miller and Bendis that first yes. arc yes it was I think Bendis did a lot of the dialogue but I think uh, yeah he... I think Miller did sort of the the plot and Bendis did the dialogue I want to say yeah but you know there it is there it is um, but yeah essentially uh, you know we're not talking cosmic rays and traveling into space that. We're talking about potentially going through a strange military uh, teleporter, which has malfunctioned. But uh, four courageous, uh, four courageous Marine Corps officers volunteered to penetrate this unknown dimension and were saturated with cos- no, sorry, regular radiation from a new element. Our boys in the lab coats are calling protium. So that's the that's the official origin story for the Ultramarine Corps. Yeah, and in the crowd, Lois whispers to Clark and says, look, does he think we're going to forget Atomgate and the super weapons to correct scandal? And I don't know if those are actual stories or something Morrison just made up for this, but I want to know more. Well, isn't Atomgate uh, the... And correct me if I'm wrong, PJ, doesn't that refer to the origins of Captain Atom? Oh, it might well do, actually, yeah. That was always my read on it, that's... Eiling, and apologies everyone who's listening if you're screaming at the at the speakers now, not massively familiar with the past of General Eiling, but I kind of assumed that he was tied up in the origin of Captain Atom. I'm not sure, but if anyone would like to write in and let us know if <laughs> Atomgate and the superweapons to Korak scandal, that sounds really familiar actually, Korak. I can't remember which fictional DC country that is. If someone wants to enlighten us, please do write in. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, the Captain Axum thing is is very much like the, um, a bit like the Hulk, really. It's like yeah. the military experiment gone wrong, and then, you know, what side of the law is he on, that sort of thing. I, th- I think there's probably a, yeah, I think there might be something there. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so, but Lois is, is very suspicious, and Clark, who's in the audience, because, hey, everyone, there's been a very subtle scene transition while we were watching this <laughs> broadcast. And uh, Superman has not gone to help with JLA. He is, uh, he's hearing scared. And he, and he says to Lois, you know, I think you're right because, hey, I'm Superman. And I'm telling you that his body language, his perspiration, his blink rate, he's lying, basically. None of this is true. Oh, Superman daredeviled it. Mm. And it's not something you see. You don't see Superman use his powers in this way very often. But when you think about it, it's a very obvious thing for him to be able to do and i love that it's something morrison just has him doing in this issue it's great Mm. Mm, yeah and um yeah and you kind of forget that deep down superman is a reporter Mm. with or without superpowers so he has an inquisitive mind 
Um, but yeah, but here we get our glorious uh, kind of roll call, roll call, which is a slightly more accurate roll call than, than the one we got before, <laughs> to the Ultramarine Corps. Um, and yes, number one is our all-American hero. Uh, his name is the big giveaway. Colonel Scott Sawyer, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Sawyer, Warmaker 1, who is a human stealth fighter. Warmaker is part man, part weapon, all-American hero. Of course he is. Then we have Captain Leah Corbin, 4D. Captain Corbin is no longer confined to only three dimensions of space. No prison can contain her. No walls can keep her out. I thought the fourth dimension was time. Um... Yes. But also, PJ, didn't uh, Aztec have a four-dimensional battery? He did, yeah. So she's probably tapping into the same thing as Aztec's power source, actually, isn't she? Or maybe it is time, but kind of like, you know, not moving through time, just kind of like, you know, scraping a bit off the top. Yeah. I don't know. Could be. Uh, But uh, then we have Major Dan Stone Flow. Uh, Major Stone's physical body was transformed by proteum radiation into liquid form. Every molecule is imprinted with Stone's intelligence and under his complete control. And PJ, I, I just want to say very, very, very quickly how I had a superhero character that I drew when I was in primary school, when I was but a lad, and who I... <laughs> Sorry, I thought for a second you meant your superhero was... Butter lad, butter lad. Yeah, he was. He was. He was the boy of butter, <laughs> uh, the uh, the dairy defender, and um, he. But well, basically, I had I had a character as a kid called Oozer, who Ooh, was that does, that's unpleasant, John. No, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I was young, but um, he was made of liquid, and hot damn, if he didn't look exactly like Flo. Except, of course, I was drawing him in my school notebook and he did not look this good. But I have a major soft spot for a character who's made of liquid. Two things I like about Flo. One, I like how bubbly he is. There's lots of bubbles in, mm. in his body. Two, I like that a guy whose name is Stone got turned into water. We see that's just, uh, what, what do they call it? Like uh, uh, nomenclature determinism? Except it's not. It's the inverted thing. Because his name would be Dan Water. Well, you know, I mean, he's the exception that proves the rule. There we go. Anyway, finally, we have Captain John Weather, who is Pulse 8. Yes, the word Pulse, then the number 8, but it's a fun pun. And it's one of the few that I got the first time I read it. So well done, me. Well, PJ, I would just like to say that uh, I purchased this book in 2004. Mm -hmm. I think I got that pun in about 2019. (laughs) <laughs> yes i'm ahead of you on one it i genuinely did not get that i was just like oh pulse eight that's a really cool that's a really cool name but his powers are proteum has connected his atomic structure to the unified field harmonic by resonating in unison with the field pulse eight can perform incredible feats which to me basically says ah magic now pj 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 the thing i love about the ultramarine Corps. And about superheroes of this era was that writers started picking up popular science magazines. <laughs> yeah. And they started thinking, well, hang on, radiation's a bit old hat. Gamma radiation can't give you superpowers. What's what's new? What's real? And people started picking up phrases, PJ, like fourth 
fourth dimension, like or um, pulse eight. It's why around this time that everyone became obsessed with the word tesseract because hmm. that was just cool. And I know that Morrison has touched back on the unified field harmonic a lot because in um, in All Star Superman. Um, Morrison talks about the uh, the four fundamental forces of the universe. So uh, gravity, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Which and the idea that altogether these might form the unified field harmonic. And we have a character in uh, All Star Superman who is a genetically engineered life form created by uh, Quintum whose entire life's goal is to try to describe the unified field harmonic with a haiku. <laughs> I like it. And also, when... Spoilers, everyone. Go read All-Star Superman. When Luther gains Superman's powers, he can see the unified field harmonic. And it is inferred by Morrison that basically that's what Superman can do. And for Luther, it is akin to having a religious experience and he suddenly realizes how horrible he's been his entire life. Ah, oh, Morrison, so good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but sorry, yes, yes, the unified field harmonic. Anyway, we then get a, an action shot of the Ultramarine Corps. They've clearly posed uh, in front of a green screen here, which is showing explosions and paratroopers and air jet air jets? I mean fighter jets. <laughs> <laughs> you know skyboats yeah yeah those winged skyboats flying behind them and it is a cool action shot and eiling's basically going they are awesome essentially it's very cool it's very cool and um uh you know lois and clark are not the only people watching this because um we cut back to the watchtower and steel plastic man and zariel are watching it as well and um you know plastic man's joking and laughing and uh steals like uh hey everyone i'm glad we put the tv on for this but could we focus please because the shaggy man and you know it could destroy the planet yeah so um apparently barda and orion are mysteriously busy as usual and superman may be a minute or two late so we only have one member who can get there in time and withstand Pacific Ocean pressures. Well, who could that be? Could be anyone, PJ. Could be anyone. In fact, it's two two members because we flip over the page and we get Green Lantern, Green Lantern logo there in pride of place as Kyle recharges his ring and gets a telepathic shout saying, we need, to ro we need you to rendezvous with Aquaman. So Kyle's like, oh, I guess... Aquaman and I can both withstand ocean pressure. So let's go. Can I just say, this is an absolutely amazing panel of Kyle. Oh, yeah. It's the quintessential uh, Green Lantern recharge shot, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, I just, I've always loved this panel. I think Porter does an amazing job. And, uh, and also, it's an amazing panel of Aquaman as well. Yep, there's his logo as he dives down into the depths. Yeah, and um, PJ, I guess this may have been referenced in the original Shaggy Man story, but uh, Skeel is trying to guide Aquaman to where to find Shaggy Man, 
And Aquaman's like, yeah, I know, Skill. I put him there. Yeah. So um, I feel like because he looks different, people forget that Aquaman is one of the original leaguers. <laughs> yeah, see, that's why uh, all the other heroes uh, who need to shave do shave regularly. Because <laughs> otherwise, uh, yeah, just the, the, the branding just gets completely off. Yeah. Yeah, but we, we cut back to the submarine that Warmaker 1 was in earlier on, and they contact him to say, look, we've got two of the JLA incoming, Aquaman and Green Lantern. We recommend a microwave offensive. Yeah, and um, Kyle is on the scene, and he's piloting a fun little submarine. And I love he has that a great... little submarine he's made. It is, uh, I, I, it's superb. It's like a 50s-style sort of journey to the bottom of the sea kind of deal. And and also glorious because of how unnecessary it is. Yeah. Kyle could have That's probably, Kyle. He could have probably made a green bubble. Uh, <laughs> but he's not that was the old guy. Uh and he has a cool line here, which uh I for some reason I always attribute to Plastic Man in my head. Because he says, uh, hey Aquaman, great kingdom you've got here. Um, what's a shaggy man and am I old enough to know? <laughs> which I uh, love. Meanwhile, a caption tells us that someone is broadcasting in a 300 megahertz to 30 gigahertz range. And uh, Kyle starts to get a bit confused and disorientated. And uh, the um, kind of military uh, uh, voiceover we're hearing says, at these frequencies, human thoughts just fall apart before they can form. Which is a problem because Kyle needs to think and concentrate to keep his little submarine intact as Aquaman just turns around shouts Kyle's name realizing something's wrong because the pressure where they are is going to just turn Kyle into putty basically <laughs> if his ring fades I um talking about weird scientific um things that Morrison loves and repeatedly reuses I'm absolutely certain although I can't place it that Morrison has done something in another of their works about how certain frequencies or in the electromagnetic spectrum can can screw uh can com- completely kind of shatter human thoughts. I swear that's come up again. I yeah, I feel like it has as well, but I cannot remember where. I feel like we might we might have discussed it already in JLA. We were a couple of things was it a bit like um didn't the white martians broadcast something yes they did low level mind control at a certain frequency and yeah. prometheus had neural chaff as well yeah yeah it comes up a lot actually doesn't it yeah but it keeps working so the villain's going to keep trying it well also kyle is so powerful you've got to have something to you know you've got to be sneaky if you want to try and take him down um but yeah so um as uh kyle's uh little green submarine uh starts to collapse and aquaman turns to help him we see warmaker one just just ripping the shaggy man capsule out of the ground um and you know cracking the glass with his fingers he's so kind of strong yeah while the captions tell us that aquaman has only seconds before green lantern's ring is going to cut out so then we get an amazing panel of aquaman grabbing kyle and just firing himself towards the surface and uh more of these captions tell us that the simulations the military have done suggest that Aquaman's power levels permit a depth-to-air leap of 10,000 feet per second at full range, but he'll have to travel directly up from 20,000 feet where they are 
at the moment. And essentially, even those speeds, the pressures, he's going to have nitrogen bubbles forming in his blood. They've given Aquaman the bends. And this, when I first read it, was mind-blowing to me. I was like, that is so clever. That is such a, such a, you know, bad for Aquaman, but such a cool way to deal with him. It is. And Kyle uh, is astonishingly lucky because he is, he is still alive. Uh, as uh, the military, uh, the naval commanders uh, kind of call Warmaker One home. And we see that Warmaker One has noticed all this and. Um, comments on self-sacrifice and uh you know them being good soldiers only for uh his superiors to tell him ours is not to reason why warmaker one bring that shaggy man home and if i had a penny for every time i've had to say that pj uh i often say it and nobody does bring me a shaggy man but yeah warmaker one is already (laughs) sort of wondering well wait Aquaman just sacrificed himself to save his friend is that this hmm, maybe okay and it's just a little moment just a little moment but Morrison already telling us that maybe the ultramarine corps aren't fully on board with Eiling at this point we'll see yeah just a a little sliver of doubt there um but then we cut oddly enough to the White House where Superman Steel and Zariel are meeting with the president, who in that glorious way of um, comics of the era, uh, is always shown in silhouette. So we never have any idea who the president is, which helps with the shifting time scale of the DC and Marvel universes. And I yeah. guess also stops anyone getting sued, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know, because they have occasionally both marvel and dc they often do this and then very occasionally you'll have it like well that's clearly bill clinton you've just drawn bill clinton in that comic that was made while clinton was president yeah except for of course in dc during the whole period when lex luthor was president and then it was lex all the time and you just saw him yeah it's why i'm generally in favor of them having like um fake politicians mm, in comics yeah, for, yeah it's, it's probably best not to because because then you know frankly the the impossible you know, the fa- if we if we charted every president, we suddenly start asking ourselves, how is Superman, how is Superman being Superman through eighty years of presidents? Like, it's probably best not to think about it. Yeah, in the space of twelve years. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> even even with the new fifty two continuity, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, um, but they do reference DC one million here because the uh, president uh, says, well, look, you know. Superman, hey, big fan, glad you're here. But hey, we all saw what happened to Montevideo with the uh, the rocket regs, and you know, I hear the Chinese are already developing their own super soldier. So yeah, you know, we basically a new arms race has begun, and America can't fall behind. Basically, saying we're doing this ultramarine core thing because we can't rely on the JLA, even though America is right there in the name. And then, um, again, uh, you know, I'll have maybe I'll comment on this later. Maybe I'll comment on it now. I don't know. But we have a a weird time skip again because we're back on the moon and Steel is paying Big Barda a visit. And uh, 
they are in a far reach, a far region of the Watchtower complex, where it would seem that Big Barda is radically redecorating, thanks to um, you know a mother box or two and a hell of a lot of technology from New Genesis. Yeah, she's basically saying we're uh, evolving your machines. Ryan and I will be more comfortable here once this work is completed. Oh, hey, you look suspicious through that steel faceplate. Uh, yeah, and um, I think Steel is being very polite mm-hmm. given given the circumstances, and also the fact that like, um, well, the JLA didn't really have a massive choice about Orion and Big Barda being added to the team, and you know, aside from Barda being helpful and violent during One Million, you know, Orion nearly killed Aquaman, like. They don't really have a lot of reason to trust them other than they're the JLA and they're nice like that. Yeah, exactly. But Steele says he's he's just curious. They they rarely see Barda and Orion and they don't still know yet why they've been assigned to the JLA. And he just comes out and says, why are you here? Where's Orion? Smash cut to New Genesis. Yes, and, and bear in mind, of course, that this is uh, right after the end of DC 1 million. And, you know, we have to assume that not everyone who was following JLA, actually read DC 1 million. But, um, you know, Barda and Zauriel, of all people, have been making very ominous comments about, you know, big, yeah. big bad things to come. Yeah. So uh, we had Big Barda's logo on the previous page. Now we get Orion and Mr. Miracle, which I'm a big fan of because I love Mr. Miracle. But they don't get their own logos. They just get the blanket logo, New Gods. <laughs> Which I'm fine with, actually, because who doesn't love the new gods? Uh, yeah, and uh, it's always a delight to see Mr. Miracle. who Because um, his costume is rad. Because his costume is amazing. And uh, and he plays a, a part in World War Three, which was really my introduction to the character. I had no idea who the hell he was before then. Um, but yeah, but, you know, uh, uh, Orion and uh, Scott Free are... Uh, you know they're uh, they're hanging out, and uh, Orion's like, um, "Hey, look, you know I go where I'm told to go, but you, why did you relinquish your godhood and choose to walk among the humans? I don't understand." And um, Scott's like, "Well, I love them, I suppose, and when the day comes, Orion, I'll stand with them against this threat, whatever that Ooh. threat may be." But before he can say anything else, Light Ray arrives and welcomes them both back to New Genesis. And Orion's like, okay, is is everyone here then? Yeah, it's it's really a bit of a gathering because uh, Tachyon, who uh, at this time is essentially the acting High Father of yep. the New Gogs, uh, because High Father, who is the old High Father, is, well, he, he's off... He's off doing cosmic things, I think. We see a little bit of him later in this series. We do. Hmm. Mm. Um, but yeah, like as 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 Flash and Aquaman pointed out back in Rock of Ages, um, things are about to get cosmic, which is basically a massive pain in the ass. because uh, even Metron's here. And uh yeah, everyone's having a gathering to to basically hear what Tachyon has to say. Yeah, even Metron arrives on his Mobius chair and he says he's uh, he's just arrived from the ultimate vanishing point of time and space and their worst fears are confirmed. So I think we can say from that he's just arrived from his little scenes at the very end of Rock of Ages. 
when he went just on a little jaunt through the cosmos. Yes, and he uh, did uh, spend a bit of time on Wonderworld, which is at the absolute limit of space time. Yes. Which is a, which is a lovely, bizarre Morrison concept. And uh, yeah, it is as far away in space as you can imagine and as far away in time as you can imagine. I don't know if that's forwards or backwards or sideways, but yeah, it's an I impossible place. I think it's all three at once. <laughs> yes. And if you, if you, uh, if anybody checked out the map of the multiverse, which came with multiversity, you would know that uh, basically Wonderworld orbits the multiversal bubble border that kind of goes around all 52 universes hmm. of the DC multiverse. This may not have been the case at the time, but it's certainly the case now, I think, unless that's been retconned. I don't oh, who know. Knows? Who knows? <laughs> but you will also remember from Rock of Ages that when Metron visited Wonderworld, it was being approached by what appeared to be a giant pair of eyes and some kind of big, big burning ball of sun stuff. Uh, yes, and... Whatever the... Well, it it has a name, apparently. Metron refers to it as the Primordial Annihilator, which apparently will make Earth... Will make contact with Earth in two months local time. Yeah, and a name is... Or a word is starting to appear on the source wall. Uh, Mr. Miracle's mother box starts to panic and he has to calm it down. And then he asks Tachyon if any of the JLA know about this. Tachyon says, only one of them, but this is a power beyond God's. And Mr. Miracle just says, well, shouldn't we maybe tell the JLA then? And then we just see a close-up of the word that's been written in fire on the source wall. That one word is Mageddon. Um, I'm not massively familiar with how the source wall works. But Tachyon, uh, who, you know, is a, a figure of energy, quite striking, is standing in front of the wall... Um, there appears to be a disembodied floating hand, PJ. Yeah. Is that part of the wall or just... I'm not sure. It's either writing the word or pointing at it. It's. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't even really care. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is, it, it's a weird visual, but, you know, and again, I read this series in the wrong order, but it is, omin- it is a very ominous note, basically. And whether, whether you refer to it as Mageddon, or the primordial annihilator. These are both horrifying and and wondrous terms. I I love it. Yeah, and when you refer to it as both things in the space of one page, oh boy, it's getting big. Yeah. Um, and can we assume, PJ? I th- I think I know the answer to this, but can we assume that the when when Takion says that only one member of the JLA knows what's going on, probably means old um, old Zauriel. Yeah, that's that's my assumption as well, since we've already now seen in DC One Million Zauriel and Barda have that conversation. Unless it's actually Plastic Man. I mean, he does know weird stuff. Yeah. Although everyone on the League says Batman knows everything, so maybe it's Batman. Maybe it's Batman. You never know. See, I read this book, the, these books in the order they came out. So this is my first reference mention of Mageddon. I had no idea what Mageddon was at this point, and I was getting very excited to find out. But I wouldn't find out for a little while. No, indeed. Yes, you had, you had to wait. But, I uh, did. Yes, uh, and for crying out, I mean, one can only imagine what this was like for people reading it one issue at the time. But, uh, 
yeah, I guess maybe this is the first indication that Morrison's series has been building to something. There have been hints in the background, but we we have we have had these kind of lovely kind of standalone side missions, these these adventures. I mean, it's all kind of just uh, you know another day in the weird life of the JLA. But yeah, maybe maybe something has been kind of governing their lives for the last few months, and it, it is leading to something. It's exciting either way. It's very exciting, especially, well, it was exciting not knowing, but also actually knowing where this is leading is also very exciting. <laughs> so, yeah. no, I'm it's just I'm, exciting. Yeah, I'm tingling. I'm not, However I'm you approach not, it. <laughs> I can't wait. Old Johnny Tingles there. Uh, uh, but another scene transition, PJ. Yeah, we cut to the Gotham rooftops and Batman and Huntress. Again, logos in, pre- in place. Yeah, I guess maybe Batman's carrying like a kind of mini bat signal which can just project his logo. Uh, <laughs> well, you uh, would. Um, but yeah, um, the team are multitasking, I suppose, because they're suddenly uh, less concerned by the Shaggy Man and a bit more concerned about um, uh, the Ultramarines, basically. And, uh, you know, Batman trusts Superman implicitly when he says that Eiling is lying about something. So um, him and Huntress are going to get to the bottom of it in some way. I feel like there's an element of, at this point, Batman is aware that there's not a lot he can do against the Shaggy Man. He and Huntress, you know, the Shaggy Man requires the more powerful members of the team. So while they deal with that, Batman and Huntress can investigate Eiling and the Ultramarine Corps and come at that angle. And this is why it's a very well-rounded team that can cover multiple problems at once. Yes, I do like how... It's, they never had to formalize it by saying like, um, oh, yeah, we are officially divided into sub teams or anything like that. I know um, Stormwatch went through a period of having like, um, oh, yeah, we have Stormwatch, Stormwatch Red and Stormwatch Black and Stormwatch White or something like that. And it's like, mm. you know, and they all perform a different function. One is covert ops or whatever. But this is definitely you know, in spirit at least, the JLA Black, because this is like, we're going a spying. And <laughs> as as happened in uh, American Dreams, we know that Batman has a, a track record for getting covert information off the US military and it occasionally being a, li- a little difficult to uh, acquire. Yeah, but it basically ends with him saying he's he and Huntress are going to meet later on uh, at a helicopter drop point in Gotham Gardens. And they better wear dark colours, which they always do anyway. And uh, <laughs> with um, Oracle kind of on the case as well, uh, she points out that um, she's found a conspiracy website that claims that General Eiling is part of some black ops agency called the Cabal. But she's suddenly distracted by that and the by a kind of horrific, um, I guess, kind of news story or she's getting some kind of report coming in about something big happening in Phoenix, Arizona, which is apparently, well, I don't know, it's apparently so serious that it takes absolute precedence over everything else that's going on. So we then cut back to the Watchtower, where Aquaman and Green Lantern have just teleported aboard, and Zariel saying, Aquaman, you were quite badly injured. I'm not entirely sure you should be returning to active duty yet. And Aquaman just says, Kyle saved my life by creating a hyperbaric compression chamber with his ring. I'm fine. Let's get on this. And it's it's a really nice detail here, but uh, 
you know, we're we're hearing all these reports about terrible things happening in Phoenix, but we're not seeing them. We mm. just get uh, coming in over, you know, the radio with Oracle. She says that, you know, reports are confused. Uh, it seems to be alien invasion. Uh, the aliens are spreading through physical contact. Attack ships are materializing everywhere, which frankly sounds like, sounds pretty awesome, actually. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's an invasion. It's an alien invasion. And uh, that is classic JLA territory. So, yeah, we get a nice little shot of uh, Skeel, Zariel, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Barda, Oracle on the TV screen going, you know, in business mode, basically. You know, we've got to get on it. Mobilizing for action. And uh, we cut again, PJ, to the White House, where General Eiling is talking to President... President Shadowface. President Shadowface. I would vote for <laughs> President Shadowface. And, um, well, we seem to have joined mid-conversation, and I'm a little confused, PJ, because Eiling is saying that the JLA have become a threat like any other. And that he's going to field test their soldiers? This, uh, well, this is all a bit confusing. Yeah, and then he says, my men have orders to keep local casualties to a minimum. And and President Shadowface gets a bit, wait, hang on, casualties? What are you talking about? And Eiling says, just, uh, you know, effective demonstration of our military power. And the president starts shouting at him, going, nope, nope, didn't authorise this. We're not we're not doing it. And then Eileen just says, yeah, but this is a coup. <laughs> yeah, you know, just, uh, you know, if it's simpler, just consider it a coup. You know, I'm just not doing what you're telling me anymore. And um, the president says, well, you, your men can't take on the entire Justice League. And he goes, well, we have been studying for some time, them for some time, sir. The JLA are civilians. My men our Marine Corps. You watch. And Eiling just puts on his hat and walks out. And how many times have villains made that mistake? They're just civilians. We can take them because we've been trained. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Kyle is a is a is a is an artist. You know, like, do you have any idea? <laughs> Do you have any idea <laughs> the determination it takes to be drawing comics at like 11 p.m.? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, he's very caffeinated. I would not mess with him. I'd like to befriend him. <laughs> I think we all would like to befriend Kyle. Um, but we cut again to Wally and Wonder Woman flying in the invisible jet. And yeah, and Wally's got his feet up. Very rude. He does apologise for the smell of his boots. Uh, yeah, and um, it's a nice little touch where Wally's like, uh, you know what, it's actually nice to be travelling at Mach 5 and being able to relax for once. So thank you for the lift. This is cool. Yeah, but Wonder Woman's all business and a little bit grumpy because she's basically going, another alien invasion? I mean, when do we just get to sit down and talk? The League is so big and so busy. And there is a nice little thing here, because I know it's not a particularly long, you know, conversation, but I think that just reflects how, as Wonder Woman points out, just how kind of like weird and just hyper, hyperactive their life is at the moment. Because, you know, she's saying like, you know, everything's happening at once. And Wally's like, well, 
I don't really notice because this is how I function all the time. But yeah, it, it kind of it kind of goes back into what Wally, uh, you know, when Kyle was complaining in an earlier in Rock of Ages, where you were saying like, you know, it, it's easy for Wally because he lives in a mansion and he and he has time for everything because he's he's the Flash. Mm. But I guess that kind of also inf- goes into just how how much of a natural at being a superhero Wally is. Like, he doesn't really have the conflict that the others do about his personal life versus his superhero life. This is this is literally just he lives and breathes this. Yeah, but Wonder Woman having missed the recruitment drive and the restructuring of the League due to being either dead or a goddess at the time, depending on when in her own series this was <laughs> all going on, she's, she's come back and everything's different and she's not sure she likes it. For one thing... Yeah, Wally says, well, I thought you'd be happy to see more women on the team. And Wonder Woman says, well, Huntress seems terrified of me and Bard is itching for a confrontation. But then she's also concerned that she's not sure if they can be an effective team or if they're just a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, and it's a fair point. And I, I very much like how, as evidenced by this this uh, this episode, this issue, the roster of the team is very big right now. Uh, you know, clearly they couldn't even fit everybody on that one page for the roll call. And we've had all these really unique and weird groupings. You know, we've had Green Lantern and Aquaman going to the bottom of the ocean. We've had Steel and uh, Plastic Man and Zariel hanging out of the Watchtower. It, Steel, Superman and Zariel going to the White House. I love the kind of pick and mix approach to the team at the moment. That only comes when you have a large cast. It can be a blessing and a curse, but I like that it leads to all these novel kind of interactions. And then it makes it special when you get a larger gathering, as we're about to, because a soldier who has been watching Wonder Woman's invisible plane arrive somehow says, uh, well, almost the full roll call here within seconds of each other. Well, let's get on this. And then you get... Wonder Woman and Flash rendezvousing with Superman, Zauriel, Aquaman, Steel, Barda, and Green Lantern. Yeah, so most of the Magnificent Seven, uh, plus friends. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm guessing that most of the military still don't realise Batman's real at this point in comics. I think oh he's still God, an urban you're myth. Right. So. Yes, and I'm sorry, I know this has come up on, on an episode before, but that continually blows my mind. <laughs> it's um, one of my favourite things about Batman at this point in comics. Yeah, yeah, that's wild. Um, but yeah, because apparently uh, there is no invasion, uh, which is weird. That's weird, isn't it, PJ? Um, that really gnarly thing I wanted to see isn't happening. Um, instead, it would seem that the League have all been lured here. And we see uh, Eiling kind of, uh, just because the penny drops, we see Eiling kind of screaming into a radio. We're about to see how the wars of the 21st century will be fought. This is Eiling. Commence operation. And as we turn the page, we get a glorious splash of the Ultramarine Corps launching into battle as shit just starts exploding, basically. And we hear Ultramarine's attack being screamed. And that's it. That's the end of the issue. We again get the next issue caption, which just says, Next, Scorched Earth. And this page does a very good job of selling that the Ultramarines are a match for the JLA, even though there are half as many of them. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, it's it's a brilliant splash page. And I guess they've got the element of surprise. But, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen next. 
I very much like this splash page. It mm. is uh, it's a little bit nineties. Uh, it's very uh, it's it's the good side of extreme. You know, we're talking like uh, lowercase e rather than lobby uh, Rob Leefield imprint extreme. Um, it's dynamic. Uh, there's lots of crackling energy. It is everything I tried to draw when I was a teenager, PJ. This is my. This is my. <laughs> these are my teenage superhero dreams encapsulated in one page, and I love it. It's it is brilliant, and as I said earlier, I don't think the designs themselves, except maybe Warmaker One, are particularly nineties. Um, they they do feel certainly. I, I feel like Four D's costume could have come from any era, really, but the way they're drawn on this last splash page, the poses, the fact that so many missiles are coming off Warmaker 1's wrists, firing out of the page towards us, the energy crackling off Pulsate, his gritted teeth as he flies towards us. It's a very 90s page, but I mean that in the best way. Oh, yeah, no, I I love it. And I, if, if I have one little kind of piece of sadness about this miniseries is that we do not get enough of Pulsate because... Everything about his design, to me personally, is chef's kiss. It is delightful. I, I really like all four designs. I think they're all they're fairly simple but effective. Uh, you, uh, two colours for the most part for both 4D and, and Pulse 8. And then obviously Flow is just a big mass of water. <laughs> but it's, it's the way Porter draws these four characters. He makes them so dynamic and makes them feel so powerful. But there's a real simplicity to their designs that I appreciate. Yeah, and I think also you can tell when um, when a creator is having fun. And yes. I, th- I think Porter is enjoying himself in this, in this I issue. I think so. I think so. As did I. Yes, PJ, we did it. We did it. A fresh issue in the bag. And now it's time for retrospection. PJ, what did you think? I loved it. Oh, it's so good to just be back on the main JLA book without having to worry about crossovers and things. Um, oh, it's a superb issue. It's that thing that Morrison's done so well throughout the series of the build-up. And we've mm. seen it in both two and three parters and in the longer stories as well. Well, Rock of Ages, where it'll be a slow build, things start piecing together, and then at the end of the issue, it's just before things are about to go crazy. And it's 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 almost quite patchwork because you've got these disparate threads being pulled together. Obviously, Eiling and the Ultramarine Corps are connected, but they feel like they're almost separate storylines in this issue. And then you get all the New God stuff as well, and ah, oh, it makes me so happy. I think um, you know the the difference between this issue and say some of the parts of DC One Million. And I, I think this is why this issue works better, is that I feel Morrison is always kind of like absolutely bursting with creativity, mm. you know, I think more so than any mere mortal. And I think there are times when they do try to pack too much in. And what I very much like about this issue is that it strikes a very good balance between kind of sheer creativity and... I guess, density of storytelling. Like, it's not too much. Like, it's just the right level of new concepts being thrown at you on every page. It's not overbearing. 
It doesn't kind of overplay its hand. And it's just very, it's very dynamic. Like, a lot happens. There's a lot of setup. But it, it's very punchy. It moves, it moves quite fast, and I appreciate that. I think the difference between this and DC 1 million is Morrison was given a crossover for DC 1 million, but they only had a month to tell that story. And so they could only tell it through the four issues that would have come out weekly in that one month and then any other issues that they happened to be writing as part of it. But there was limited space. With JLA itself, I feel like it was a case of they just said to Morrison, well, you know, how many issues do you want to take your story and use mm. that? So that he, they, Morrison themselves had more time to figure it out and to pace it. And I think it really shows to me that, that the main JLA series is Morrison firing on all cylinders and not being constrained by anything. Mm. And there are some weird, I mean, I'll be honest with you, there are some weird... Um, I don't know if it's it's not really pacing. It's not it's not a pacing issue. It's it's weird that there's a patch in the middle of the issue where we do jump between scenes quite rapidly. Hmm. Um, I don't think this is it's not a criticism because I I still enjoy it a lot. But it is weird that like I I think in my head the scenes in my memory the scenes kind of flowed into one another a bit more a bit more smoothly. And I, reading it again, I was like, um, oh, yeah, it is maybe a little bit disconnected at parts, but every individual moment is very good. So I'm not really complaining too much. It's, it's just a way to help keep your interest through it, isn't it? Short, sharp scenes to just sort of get you from point to point to point. Here's this bit of the story you need to know. Here's this next bit. Here's this next bit. And, you know, it's it's like, as we've mentioned, it jumps from Superman's Ariel and Steel in the White House to suddenly Steel on the Watchtower. But, you know, I figure it's just Steel finished the meeting in the White House, teleported straight up to the Watchtower, and that's what we're seeing now. We didn't need to see the actual teleportation. That's fine. Yeah, no, it's all fine. And it's nice that Morrison is using the pages in a very efficient manner you yeah. know it's like uh you know we we talked about some there were some sections of dc one million where we were kind of like why are we spending you know several pages on this moment but only a couple of panels on another moment which seemed more important whereas like i don't think anything's wasted in this issue like it it it, it sets up all the dominoes you know and it kind of you know, it's 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 hitting them. You know, it's moving just as fast as it needs to. Um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and so good to have Porter back with Morrison. Yeah, and I think Val Val Semix did a great job on DC One Million. Uh, superb artist, but it just feels comfortable mm. having Morrison and Porter together on the JLA. Oh, agreed, agreed, and. You know, it's it's there, there. There have been other artists whose work has appeared in the series, and they've all commended themselves, you know, well. But you know, Porter's, you know, pencils are as are as much a part of this series as as Morrison's writing. You know, they mm. they both defined this. It's um, you know, obviously we are talking about Morrison's writing in this in this in this show because that's our particular focus. But you know. 
comics are a visual medium and you know we really wouldn't be here if porter hadn't done the work to to bring it to life and i i love porter's renditions of these characters often if i just think about superman or the flash or green lantern it's a porter rendition that will pop into my head before anything else from Mm. this series most of the time oh agreed agreed and you know there are some panels in this this issue which you know when i think back on this series and you know frequently with fond memories some of these moments are seared into my brain as just these incredibly iconic little panels i mentioned that shot of kyle you know Mm. charging his ring that is just a great panel regardless of what story it appears in you know aquaman making that dive down you know when when porter's on it like he's he's really really good yeah and some of the composition choices as well like that panel where you've got warmaker one in the foreground wrenching the shaggy man's capsule out of the ground while in the background aquaman is is turning to look at kyle as as his ring construct starts to fade the focus of that panel in theory should be aquaman and green lantern because that's what we're talking about that's the main event of it it's it's kyle's construct failing aquaman having to make the decision to save his teammate but it's a background moment and but it just works Mm. it's clear you can see the storytelling but having this powerful shot of warmaker one in the foreground almost not not looking at the other two not caring really just getting on with with his job it's i don't think it's the choice a lot of other artists would have made but i think it just works so well on that page no it does it does it does and you know it's funny because you know i mentioned earlier like the the way that porter's artwork has changed over the series and will Mm. continue to change and i like all of those phases but i think um if i had casting my mind back to one particular era i think and I, i keep going back to the uh the uh, the heaven on earth story the, yeah. the angels in in uh, Los Angeles and hot damn if that isn't possibly my favorite looking kind of period of Porter's artwork it was a brief window but I very I like that just looks incredible and yeah. uh, there are some great moments to come in World War Three which I very much love as well but even though and this is <laughs> This is like, you know, the mildest criticism. Even though this is not my quote-unquote favourite era of Porter working on this particular book, this looks great. (laughs) No. So even when this, uh, you know, this isn't my... Even when this is quote-unquote not my favourite, I still love it. I think... Uh, I know we're a few issues off it yet, but I th- I think Crisis Times 5 is a real high point for Porter. Mm-hmm. He does some superb work in that story, and I'm very, very excited to reach that. It's interesting that, you know, uh, thinking on it, if you exclude DC 1 million, the previous storyline was a two-parter, you know, with the Star Conqueror, mm. and we're coming into a three-parter now and it's interesting because this is you know you think what this is 98 this is around the era that superhero big mainstream superhero comics were getting a bit of a resurgence thanks both to this comic this very comic we're reading and um i think also the uh the authority Mm -hmm. from wild by ellis and hitch and 
Yeah, I just find it interesting that like nowadays, most story arcs, there's like a kind of unaccepted rule that it's generally six issues. Yeah. You know, you two passes, three passes, they're quite rare nowadays. And I know um, when um, Morrison and Quietly were doing, uh, when they they relaunched uh, Batman and Robin, uh, the arcs were three issues long around that time and I think Morrison commented in in at the time that it was a format they very much enjoyed actually and would like to spend a bit more time working on and uh, yeah I don't really have a, a grand thesis or commentary here other than it's nice to see a a shorter story in a way you know these two parts and these three parts are are quite welcome I think there's only three stories in all of the trades that are longer than three parts, which is Rock of Ages, which is the whole trade, Crisis Times Five, which is a four-parter, and then World War Three. If I'm remembering... Oh, no, New World Order, that's a four-parter as well, but that's the start of the series. You've yeah. got to go big blockbuster there. But I think everything else is two- and three-parters, or one-shots, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, if you maybe exclude, as you say, Rock of Ages, which is a bit more of like a kind of um, special event in its own mm. right, but yeah, Heaven on Earth, uh, two parters. I mean, oh, and also, yeah, the, the scuff of the key. That was a two-parter as well. Yeah, Woman of Tomorrow, that was just a one-shot. Woman of Tomorrow is great. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, I like these kind of... Yeah, that's probably like my only... As much as I love the um, the big background story arc, which develops, and of course, which culminates in World War Three, which is, you know, such a kind of influential book for me, I, I do... I will miss these kind of shorter little stories. And uh, yeah. I, there's there's a parallel universe out there where Morrison and Porks had never stopped and just kept making awesome little standalone two-parters, three-parters forever. And um, that's fun to imagine. I am jealous of the John and PJ that live in that reality and, and get to just do this, this podcast in, ad infinitum. <laughs> Is this, um, you know, thinking about it, like, who who on earth in December 1998 was thinking about the Shaggy Man, apart from Morrison? Literally no one. This Literally this comes no up, and I remember this coming up in the Wizard Magazine JLA special. There's an interview with Morrison, I think, where they point blank ask them, why the Shaggy Man? <laughs> and, you know, Morrison... I can't remember exactly what they answer, but yeah, they they go into it on why they wanted to use the Shaggy Man, and and is I, I think it just boils down to thought it'd be fun. Well, we're seeing also like you know around the time where where Morrison goes on to do um, Seven Soldiers of Victory, mm. so we're talking oh gosh, that was around like two thousand seven, I want to say something like that. Yeah, post All Star Superman. But that was at a period where Morrison was basically on retainer with DC yeah, to dive into their back catalogue at will, find an old character that no one cared about anymore, dust them off, reimagine them, and then hand them over to other creative teams. Yeah. Which is kind of basically one of the goals of Seven Soldiers of Victory. You know, you reimagine seven new characters, you get people to care about them with a Morrison a Morrison miniseries, and then they're there for other people to play with. I mean, you can kind of see why DC gave them that job. Um, 
did was it was it did it come up in that wizard interview where Morrison talks about the JLA series getting this weird reputation for being very Silver Age? I think so. Yeah, I'll need to read it again. That was the actual Wizard JLA special was printed around the same time as this Ultramarine Corps story. So now is the time for me to dig it out and read it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because you know. I generally considered this to be quite a modern and forward-thinking take on superhero comics for the time. Mm. And frankly, even now, looking back at it. But yeah, I guess to some people, it may have seemed oddly retro in a way. I guess it it does reference, at times, old concepts which, which weren't maybe mainstream DC at the time, like the Star Conqueror or the Key, even. This is something that I think Morrison's JLA, uh, Morrison and Porter's JLA, sorry, and Busick and Perez's Avengers have mm. in common oh, is they right. would both dip into the past and pick weird bits of continuity that had been left lying or weird characters who no one had really done much with for a while and they'd just bring them back and do something awesome and mm. bring them kicking and screaming into the 90s and early 2000s and it, yeah both books did it and both books do it really really well no agreed and i know and that's a, that's a wonderful comparison pj something i hadn't really haven't hadn't really you know picked up on but you're right yeah they very different series in in in, in writing and and, mm. and art but yeah similar Similar approach in a way. There's like a, a lot of respect for what's come before while also, you know, having having the courage to to take the series in, in a new direction, like just when it needed it. And I think a, a series can be both Silver Age and modern all at the same time. And it's a balance that I think Morrison and Porter and Busick and Perez all struck on the books they were on at the time. The Platinum Age... <laughs> no sorry the platinum age is 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 uh in the year 853,000 and we're all on a junkyard and we're we don't talk about the platinum we age. don't talk about that yeah but no i was gonna say the bronze era but that's actually a thing uh the 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 viridium viridium age like i'll the, take like, it like the seventh metal man pj <laughs> anyway pj i'm rambling it's getting to that point of the evening is there anything more you'd like to say about you know uh executive action nope uh just just that it's great and i love it and i cannot wait to check out part two i i couldn't have said it better myself so i won't um a massive thank you to gav mitchell for drawing our uh, our amazing cover artwork. We're big fans of it. And to Elliot Red for composing and performing our, our wonderful theme tune, Justice, which also big fans, and which you can listen to whenever you like just by going to his SoundCloud. There you go. There you go. I think. I hope. Maybe there are. I can't remember. Are there links in the description? I think I've linked. Usually. <laughs> I think I've linked to their work. Yeah, yeah, I, you, I yeah you do. Yes, I have. Good. Good work, Pastor John. <laughs> um, BJ, is there anything you'd like to shout about? No, I'm good this week. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I ain't got nothing to say either. So I think we've, we've, we've talked enough. We recorded two episodes in a week, even though they have spanned now most of December for our listeners. <laughs> um, PJ, it's been a genuine pleasure. And uh, given our weird, weird, weird recording schedule, who knows when we will next speak. But uh, I hope you have a great holiday. You too. Yeah, every, um, 
Merry Christmas to everybody um, listening. Merry, imagine a big, a big shaggy man standing on your roof, just shaking his belly like a big pot of jelly. <laughs> nice. Um, PJ, on this festive, heartwarming note, as we we're entering a new era in JLA and uh, and the dark Christmas months, is there anything you'd like to say? Well, no, 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 no. Sorry, John, you're screwing it up. Get it right. Too much eggnog. PJ, <laughs> would you please see us home in your own unique fashion? Merry Christmas, and may all your shaggy dreams come true. Hold up. 